We're doing a lot of precursor work to get into Ephesians. Here's the reason why. Sometimes we make a lot of assumptions about who Paul is. Sometimes we think we're familiar with his ministry and so we don't need to go over those things. But especially significant is, how did Paul come in contact with Ephesus? Why did it matter? What, what was the situation at hand? What did the climate look like for them? Why was he attracted to Ephesus? Some things we've seen in Paul's life so far is that he went from a murderous, legally approved terrorist of the church of Jesus Christ to a humble and willing servant whom Jesus chose personally to show him how much he must suffer for the name of Christ. We then moved into how does Paul work? When he comes in contact with Jews, how does he do that? We find that he visits synagogues first. It's good to have a people that already have some sort of groundwork so that you can build upon that in order to lead them to Jesus. But we also saw in the last chapter, Acts chapter 17, that when he got in contact with Gentiles, people who didn't have this background, he had to start with the basic understanding of this is who God is. Now sometimes that might seem strange to us, but if you paid any attention to America, you see that's where we're at. I saw an inter- Somebody sent me something interesting the other day. They said if the Apostle Paul was alive today, the churches in America would be getting in a letter. I thought that was interesting. And I couldn't help but to wonder, how would that compare to Corinth's letter? Interesting thoughts. But here's one thing you've got to appreciate about Paul. He was unrelenting about his love for Jesus and wanting people to know. He was no slouch. Just because he was a servant didn't mean he was a doormat. And he wanted to use every opportunity possible, even ones that he thought might be there, in order to make headway for the gospel. In chapter 18, we pick up after he leaves Athens. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you, we got a lot of scripture to cover today. I'm going to try to go in a quick fashion. Not because I want to leave anybody behind, but I want to emphasize the things I think are important. But it all just fits together, and it all surrounds the city of Ephesus. Okay? Chapter 18, verse 1. After these things, he left Athens and went to Corinth. We're familiar with that place, right? And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus. You say, where's Pontus? Well, if you're looking at your map, let's say. In fact, Dave, can we pull up the big colored map? Let's pull that up for just a second. All kinds of fun colors on there. Everybody see this? Does this work? Larry Moore, you broke my clicker. Oh, it's backwards. <laughs> if you know, you know. Um, Pontus right here. This is north of Galatia. Galatia is a region. It's not a city. Over here, we are dealing with Ephesus. See that? This is important for us to realize when he comes in contact with this. The reason why Ephesus was so attractive is because it's got a population of about 250,000 people. Seven major trade routes ran through this city. So everybody's coming and going, coming and going. It was considered a seat of democracy as far as Rome was concerned. So it was considered a, a free city of which many judgments and things were made there. It housed the Temple of Diana, which we'll look at here in just a little bit. But also, it is a port city. And when you're right up next to against the GNC, you've got a lot of amazing things that can happen in and out of that place. It was bustling. Things were going on everywhere. It was exactly where Paul wanted to be to tell anybody that passed by about Jesus Christ. But notice right here that Aquila and his wife Priscilla are from this area. And they migrate over to, everybody see Corinth? All the way over this way. Quite a far away from home. 
It's interesting about Aquila and Priscilla. They are called fellow workers with Christ in Romans 16. It's also understood that whenever they come to reside in Ephesus, they leave and they go with Paul. We're going to see that in a second. They set up a house church. Paul leaves them there and he moves on to take care of some things that he needs to. But they set up a house church there and it was probably from their house church that he wrote 1 Corinthians to the Corinthians. Important stuff for us to know. Notice it says here, it says, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Now, Claudius commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Why might that have been? Well, who is Claudius? Claudius was considered uh, the Caesar at that time, right before Nero's time. He governed up until the time of Nero. And Claudius was about trying to keep some order going on in Rome. Now, what's interesting is, is you see these little tricklings of the gospel have been coming about. And as was Paul's custom, if you had somebody who was familiar with the idea of the gospel, they were always looking for that synagogue. Where's the synagogue in this city? Because I've got at least my Old Testament ground to get in there and start speaking. Well, what happens when you have somebody who's a Christian who steps into a synagogue and begins speaking about Jesus? What happens? Everybody gets angry. Sounds like a great place to be, doesn't it? But everywhere you go, there's an uproar that takes place. Well, Claudius is not a fan of this. And as he does some investigation on this, it's believed that the reason why he said, all Jews out of Rome now, and he exiled them from that area. Because even if you were there just to be part of the synagogue and you weren't buying into that Jesus was the Messiah, you were still considered part of the problem. And so he threw the baby and the bathwater out. They were all to be expelled. So now they find themselves coming over from that realm of Italy and traveling, and they actually come in contact with Paul. Notice it says he came to them, verse 3, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. This tells you that Paul had a bivocational ministry. Really good place to make groundwork with Aquila and Priscilla. Verse 4, and he was reasoning in the synagogue of Corinth every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Sounds familiar, yes? Now here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Everybody put on your skimming eyes, okay? That's not a disease, okay? Eyes that are going to be skimming. And we're going to start in verse 5, and I wanted to show you some things. Silas and Timothy finally show up. And when they show up, Paul is then able to devote himself fully in order to be preaching the gospel and reasoning with the Jews in the synagogue. What's interesting is, is they start blaspheming God, and he says, you know what, if that's the attitude you're going to take, that's enough. He knocks out his shoes as a symbol against them. That wasn't like some sort of dance, okay? Just making sure you know. And he decides that he's going to leave there, and he goes right next door to a guy named Titius Justice. And he houses up with him and then leads the leader, Crispus, of the synagogue to faith in Christ. And then another guy comes in. If you look over at mm, verse 17 there, named Sosthenes, he becomes the leader of the synagogue. Well, oh, guess what? Paul leads that guy to faith in Christ as well. Because of all this craziness that's going on, the Jews of Corinth decide that they're going to start a revolt. And so they begin coming against him, and they try to bring legal charges against Paul, and nothing will stick. So much so that the proconsul of that day says, I can't find anything wrong with this. You guys have obviously got an issue. Deal with it on your own time. Their way of dealing with it is beating Christians. And so that's how they handle this situation. We then move into verse 18. That was the Cliff Notes version, okay? 
Paul having remained many days longer. Oh, forgive me. Let me draw your attention to one more thing. Look up at verse 11 of chapter 18. And he settled there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Paul was there for a year and a half discipling Christians in Corinth. Okay? <clears throat> Look at verse 18. Having remained many days longer, he took leave of the brethren and put out to sea for Syria, and with them were Priscilla and Aquila. They decided they would leave Corinth and they would go with him. In Centrea, he had his hair cut for he was keeping a vow. Now real quick, Paul was under what was called a Nazarite vow. You can read about this in Numbers chapter 6, verses 1 through 22. We'll give you all the details on it. But it was where someone decided to voluntarily consecrate themselves to the Lord for a special reason or for a purpose. Consecrate, set themselves apart voluntarily uh, for something to be done. Part of that vow was, is number one, you wouldn't drink wine. Number two, you wouldn't come in contact with anything unclean. And number three, you'd let your hair grow long as a sign that you were under this vow. At the time of the completion of this vow, you would then cut your hair, but save your hair in order to take it to Jerusalem, and it had to be offered as a sacrifice there as a completion of the Nazarite vow. That's a quick version of this. Verse 19, they came to where, church? Ephesus. Now, here's why this is a big deal. If you have a marginal note or something next to it, you'll notice over there in your margin that you're going to have Acts 16.6. And you might remember, if you're familiar with Acts, there was a time when Paul was looking to expand his missionary ministry. And it said that he looked over into Asia, or what's known as uh, um, Asia Minor. And he wanted to go there, but he was forbidden to do so. And then he had a vision of a man over in Macedonia saying, come over to us. This is really exciting for Paul because Paul wanted to minister in this place and he was told no. So he has to go around and he has to minister over in these other areas. And now coming back through here, he's told yes. Now real quick, just so you know, he went from Corinth to Ephesus. Dave, if we could bring that map up real quick. And I won't need my clicker because the line is really, really plain here. Notice where you're dealing with over here in Corinth. See where Athens was? He left there. He goes over to Corinth. He meets Aquila and Priscilla. He decides to leave there. Man, this is a super travel over into Ephesus. But notice what Ephesus is. Ephesus is a port city. That's a very big deal about why he would be attracted there. Having been forbidden to go before, the Holy Spirit now gives the green light. You know what that means? In your prayers, God may be seeing no. God may be seeing no. God may be saying no right now. But that doesn't mean never. That's an important point. I guarantee that because Paul was told no, it probably made his prayer life more fervent for this reason. He wants to reach people. He understands that the gospel makes the difference. And he understands that he's called to go to Gentiles wherever they may be. So he wants to be there in that moment. Notice in verse 19, <clears throat> they came to Ephesus and he left them there, being Priscilla and Aquila. Now he himself entered the synagogue and he reasoned with the Jews. Now this is great because this is way different from Corinth. A preacher always likes it when people like them. Just saying. Verse 20. When they asked him to stay for a longer time. You might be saying, whoa, we're getting some headway here. He did not consent. Isn't this kind of typical of what Jesus would do? There'd be a lot of people that would want healing, a lot of people that wouldn't want to come sit around his teaching. And for some reason, out of nowhere, he'd be like, and I got to go now. And he'd go up on the side of the mountain and leave them. He'd get in the boat and he'd head out to the other side. And you think, doesn't he see that there's so much more to do? How do we feel about that? 
How do we feel about Jesus leaving a prime ministry opportunity? Let's read a little bit further about what Paul was thinking here about this as well. Notice, but taking leave of them saying, here it is, I will return to you again if God wills and set sail from Ephesus. Remember, Paul still, I know it sounds strange, but inside Paul's satchel, he has his locks of hair, yes? He's got a commitment to fulfill. He's already made a vow to God. And part of completing that vow is not just cutting your hair, but making a solid offering of it. He hadn't completed that yet. Or let's say it this way. His devotion of what God wanted him to do overshadowed the possibilities of what could have to a lesser degree. There's many times that God has called us to do something in our lives of which we need to set off and be directly devoted to seeing that through to the very end, being faithful all the way. And too often we get sidetracked on side things. Maybe God didn't want us to invest that type of time in. And we miss the blessing that would come from fulfilling what God would want. Now, if we know anything about the law and the Nazarite vow, the offering of the hair completes this in Jerusalem. Do you think that Paul would be privy to so much blessing if he had skipped out on this end of it? No. And he couldn't afford to let even a receptive Jewish audience in a synagogue deter him from what he knew needed to be done. Sometimes you've got to tell some people no and do what God's told you to do, regardless of the response you might get. That's okay. If God's given you the reasons why to do it, go with God. He'll work out the rest, as we see. So it says here, this is very interesting. He said self for Ephesus, verse 22. When he landed in Caesarea, you might not readily see this, but it's interesting because this is the way that, that the idea of going to Jerusalem is phrased in the Scripture. He went up and greeted the churches and went down to Antioch. Everybody see the up and down? Jerusalem is actually on an elevated plain. So anytime it would say they were going to go up to Jerusalem, and you would look at where they're coming from, you think, wait a second, that doesn't make any sense. How in the world would they do that? You flip back to your map, because you're a good student of the Bible, right? And so you're wanting to check all that out. Why in the world is that working? Because we're talking about the idea of terrain. We're talking about the idea of elevation. And Luke, being as precise and doctorly as he is, Decides that he's going to even list that here. So he goes up and he visits with the church in Jerusalem. Then he goes back down to Antioch. Anybody remember what Antioch is? Anybody know? Chapter 13, verse 1. I know you guys have been all over this. It's where they were first called Christians, yes. But it's where Barnabas saw the revival going on in Antioch and said, I need some help discipling these people. And if you remember, Paul was off in Tarsus, off the scene, not doing anything not hardly known to anyone, Barnabas goes after him and says, Paul, I need your expertise in order to train up these people. I can encourage them all day long, but what they need is teaching and training. So this is actually where Paul goes, and he and Barnabas become part of this. This is their home church. This actually completes the second missionary journey of Paul, and he immediately springs into his third missionary journey. Look at verse 23. And having spent some time there, he left and passed successively through the Galatian region, you know where that is because we just saw it, and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. A word about that. Missions is not just about evangelizing. Missions is also about strengthening people, strengthening disciples. If we are a group that is to be considered on mission, it's not 100% evangelism. It is also being considered of the Christians who might be discouraged or down to try to lift them up 
and reiterate the Word of God into their lives. Trust me, believers need that when they're in the thick of mission. They need it. They need to be pointed to Christ all the time. So Paul does that. Now here's what's great. Paul is off the scene in Ephesus. He says, if God wants, I'll come back. That's a pretty good reliance subject right there. But then God does something while he's away. I love it. When one person passes off here and needs to do something else, God raises up someone else to have it. <clears throat> Verse 21 or 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth. Alexandria was the capital of Egypt. Okay? He says here, he was an eloquent man. He came to Ephesus and he was mighty in the scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. Now pause for a second. Really important that we understand what was the baptism of John. The baptism, John the Baptist, was that of repentance of sin. They would come out in the wilderness. Everybody remember this? He's out there eating locusts and honey. Sounds like a good keto diet to me, okay? And he's out there, and when he's dunking them down and they pop up out of there, they're confessing their sins. Why? Because his message was, make straight the paths for the Lord. When he shows up, you don't want to miss it. Apollos is thoroughly acquainted with this. And so he is coming, and he begins teaching God's Word accurately. But there's something about the limitation that's there that he's only familiar with John's baptism. Now watch what happens here as it moves forward. It says, verse 26, And he began to speak out boldly, uh-oh, in the where? The synagogue. Now didn't this group just have Paul in on his itinerant ministry? That guy leaves, and now Apollos comes in. This synagogue just can't get a break, can they? They got guest speakers all over the place. It says here, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, now watch this, because this is masterful. They took him aside, and they explained to him the way of God more accurately. He said, oh, wait a second. We just saw up here that he's an eloquent man. He knows how to speak well. He's accurately engaged in the Scriptures. He's speaking along the solid lines about Jesus. He wasn't saved. I think he was saved. I think he was saved. What might have been the problem here that the text shows us? He only knows so much. What he knew, he knew it to a great degree. But his knowledge was limited. Now thank the Lord that Aquila and Priscilla didn't sit there in the synagogue when he stood up and go, wait a second, how come he's not going to this other place? Boo! Boo, Apollos, boo! Somebody ought to straighten you out. Aren't you so glad they didn't ridicule? They didn't condemn? They didn't criticize? They discipled. They saw the incredible potential that this person already had and that he was already setting off in an incredibly solid direction. And they said, you know what? He just needs a little bit of spice here. He just needs a little bit of peppering here. So let's not embarrass him publicly. Let's not do anything like that. Let's take him aside. Let's have him over for dinner, right? Let's sit down with him. And let's unfold to him what we know that the Apostle Paul has shared with us to give him a more complete and successful ministry. Now, what in the world was that? We'll talk about that in a second because I think the text tells us. But look what happens to Apollos after they take the time to love him into greater truth. It says here, verse 27, And when he wanted to go out to Achaia, 
the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. So he comes in and he begins discipling people there and speaking encouragingly there. For he, was, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. That might give us an inkling on what he might have missed. It's not that he didn't know accurate things about Jesus. Maybe it was the fact that he was able to now take the unfolding of the Messiah from the Old Testament and better plug it in to who Jesus Christ was when he showed up on the scene. Why? Because the Jews needed to be known, or needed to know about this, and they were being refuted. You know what that means? It means when they tried to come to the table, they went, ah, but, but, I don't know. Well, hold, wait, wait, just, no. That's what they were doing. No argument would stick to the wall. They had nothing to say when Apollos wanted to unfold now what he understood. Now, what's crazy about this is the scene shifts. We shift away from Apollos. Look at 19.1. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus. Ah, God brought him back. Praise the Lord. Now watch this. And he found some disciples. Now we've looked at this passage before, and I'll be honest with you. I taught it a certain way up until when I studied for this. My view about this has changed, only slightly. But I still think it's incredibly interesting. Some disciples from where? When we last left Paul, he was in the synagogue, and they wanted to hear more from him about it, but we didn't read of any conversions that took place. Instead, he left Aquila and Priscilla there. Could these be disciples that came from his ministry? Maybe. Somebody's growling. Is it baby growling? Well, that's precious. No, no, Tyler, Tyler. No, man. Sit down. Sit down. We love little Piper. It's great. I just thought either somebody's really hungry or somebody does not like what I just said. Either one. It's okay. She's not even one. We can deal with it. That's good. So notice here. He finds some disciples. They either came to faith through Aquila and Priscilla's ministry being left there, or they came to understand something through Apollos' ministry when he began teaching them. Now watch what this says. Verse 2, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now pause. Does this imply that they had believed? It does. They're obviously saved people. But look at their response. And they said to him, No, we've not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. Pause for just a second. I believe that these were products of Apollos' ministry before Aquila and Priscilla took them aside. This tells us what they explained to him. He was unaware of the coming of the Holy Spirit. He was unaware of the power of the indwelling Spirit. You know what that means? It means that when he understood that from them, he then became indwelt with the Holy Spirit at that moment. And this is the reason why he was sent off to another region to have such a powerful ministry. Because he now has a completely Spirit-led ministry. So now he's got some disciples that sat under him early on, left behind in Ephesus. They have believed. They know about Jesus being the Messiah. They don't have the Spirit. But watch what happens. <clears throat> and he said to them, And to what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. Hold it. Go back to verse 25. What was he well versed in? He was being acquainted only with John the Baptist's ministry. That's interesting. Notice how it all pieces together. 
He said, and notice that my error was a contextual one. Let that be a lesson. Context determines meaning. I tell you that all the time, and I'm still a victim of making bad choices. It's okay. We're all learning and growing. Praise God. Have mercy. Okay. So notice he says here, uh, into what were you then baptized? And they said into John's baptism. And Paul said, and here's the great commentary on how we should understand John the Baptist's ministry. John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. What does that tell you? It tells you that people can repent before they believe in Christ. It's possible. It's absolutely possible. So notice, you may have been in a situation where you're familiar with this repentance that's taken place and this baptism of repentance that went on, but guess what? There's more. Now watch how it goes. Verse 5, when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and, when, and I believe at that moment they had the Spirit indwelling them, because having the Spirit in you and the Spirit on you are two different things. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. Now the question is, is why did they speak in tongues then? In order to show the authenticity of something that had just taken place. Did they have a knowledge and a belief in Jesus? Yes. What was the difference? The Spirit was the difference. And the evidence of the Spirit to let the people know. So now notice there were about 12 men of them in all. Verse 8, I love it. You can't stop Paul. Here it is. And he entered the synagogue. Now this is visit number 2 from Paul, and this is visit number 3 from a Christ follower within probably the span of a month or so. These guys can't get a break, can they? It says here, and he continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them and notice he's got an interesting subject here about the kingdom of God. Now here's the reason why that was a particularly intriguing subject. Because that hit at the core of all of their Old Testament understanding. Their covenant with Abraham to be given a land, to have a seed that would come about through Abraham, and to also have blessing. Then it also sprung into this idea of the Davidic covenant. When God made a promise through the prophet Nathan, to David, of there will be one who sits on your throne, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So we're not just talking about real estate being involved. We're not just talking about offspring being involved. We're not just talking about worldwide blessing coming through the Jews being involved. We're talking about royalty and rulership that will dominate the world. Now, if you're a Jew in first century Ephesus and Rome is dominant over you, you stop and your ears perk up pretty well. Because whatever oppression has been taking place in your society, to your family, at your workplace, or even in your religious observances, you want liberation from that. God hates oppression. He absolutely hates it. He absolutely cannot stand it. So everybody's perking up really good about, wait a second, we're talking about kingdom stuff now. I want to know more. He knows how to attract an audience here. Notice the duration is three months. He moves on here, verse 9. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient. Now we all know this from our own lives. Have you ever been rebellious or in sin or not listening or not obeying or whatever it might be? And then when somebody tries to bring the word of God into your presence, you throw it away. Nobody's ever done that? Yeah. You find out that you've got a hardened heart to the Word of God. And your mind's telling you, this is true. You should listen. This feeds your spirit. 
it's right and you're wrong. We don't like that. The Word of God does one of two things. It will either harden a heart or it will soften a heart. What's interesting is before, he had, will you tell us more? Will you tell us more? Then as three months went by, the Jews were like, we've had enough of this. Everything Paul was telling them was from the Scriptures, yes? But notice, over time, they probably started to recognize their guilt. They probably started to recognize their ignorance. And they didn't like the fact that what they were participating in now might actually be not what God wanted. So look at this. It says here, they became hardened and disobedient. And look what happens. They speak evil of the way before the people. Guarantee this. When you have a hardened and disobedient heart, your mouth is the first thing that takes center stage. You will complain. You will rail. You will gripe. You will moan. And you will be the victim at the center of everything else that's going on in your life so that you can find some sort of justification for how you're right because you've been personally infringed. Understand this. That is sin. It is absolute and total sin. This gets so bad in Paul's situation. He actually takes the people who have responded to the gospel and removes them from the synagogue situation because he recognizes for these baby Christians, it's going to do way more harm than it is good in the situation. We've got to get them out of here. Now, what's interesting is they take them to the school of Tyrannus. The school of Tyrannus might be one of two things. Some people are kind of divided on this. It's either a school of medicine, which would explain why maybe Luke even mentioned it by name here. Being a doctor, he would have been familiar with that. Or it was more likely a school of philosophy and religion. It was probably akin to Athens where everybody just sat around and, and, and kind of talked about what the new belief system was of the day. They were hobnobbers. Anybody have hobnobber friends? Yeah, most of the time they're called gossips, but we like to call them hobnobbers because it doesn't hurt as bad. Okay, look at verse 10. This took place for two years. And look what happens. So that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks, over a period of two years of Paul's personal investment in this situation. And notice what he's doing. He's discipling people. What's crazy about the school of Tyrannus is it being on ground to where many people, especially the affluent, could come and participate in that. Now they're not just talking the latest philosophical idea. They're hearing about the gospel of Jesus Christ. In that work time, in that society during the day, they actually, and and hold on to your hats here, because I know what you're going to think. Wow, this sounds really good for us. They actually had a rest period between 11 a.m. and 4 p.m. Does a five-hour rest period in the middle of your work day sound like a good time? But here's the thing. How did they rest? They would sometimes show up at the school of Tyrannus to see what's going on, what's coming through the grapevine this day. Imagine for two years, the word begins to spread about the teaching that Paul is giving there because he's faithfully investing in discipling people. Now, this completely takes off. Are you ready? Here are the results after two years of time. God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Number one, don't think that's strange because Paul is an apostle. Number two, Paul's not performing the miracles. God is. Understand this. Paul is just a willing vessel. Verse 12. So that handkerchiefs, now that's kind of, we, we look at that and we go, oh yeah, what do you do with your handkerchief? You blow your nose and you wipe your forehead and hopefully not in close proximity with one another, right? The very cloth that Paul would use while he's tent making to wipe his brow from work. They were taking this and moving it around to people and those who touched it were being healed from their diseases. Yuck! 
And wow, how cool. You know? It's like, it's sweaty, but I'm not going to have this problem anymore. Why not? You know? Wow. Talk about the medicine taste of that. Anyway, moving forward. So that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick, and the diseases left him, and evil spirits went out. But also, some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Now, everybody watch for the lack of confidence in this. I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. What's the problem there? No personal relationship. Can you imagine? Well, this guy said to that guy that you should be doing that. You know what you say? I don't care. That's usually what we say in there. Or we do this. Sometimes I joke with my wife about this. Well, you know, they say, who are they? Who gave them this platform? How did they become experts? What are they degreed in? Why are we listening to them? Who are these people? I guarantee you they're there. But who are they? That's what I want to know. This is kind of what they're doing. They said, come out of them, evil demons. Well, that doesn't do a hill of beans for these people. Look what it says here, verse 14. Seven sons of one Sceva, the Jewish chief, the Jewish chief priest. This is all in Ephesus, remember. Excuse me. Jewish chief priests were doing this. Verse 15. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, now this had to be a fun time. You talk about spiritual warfare on your front door. I love it. He said to them, I recognize Jesus, right? Lord of glory. Remember that guy? And I know about Paul because I've been fighting that dude all day. But who are you? <clears throat> Notice it doesn't give us a response. Well, don't you know I'm one of the seven sons of Sceva? And then he was like, yeah, right? Voted off the island real quick. Notice what happens here. And the man in whom the evil spirit, uh, was even, it was the evil spirit, he leaped on them and he subdued uh, all of them and overpowered them, seven of them, seven of them, okay? So that they fled out of the house naked, that's the Kentucky pronunciation, and wounded, beat up, thrown down, and running with no clothes on, having gashes everywhere out of the house. It had to have been a scene. Naked as a jaybird, okay? So notice this, verse 17. This became known to all. Man, you know that went through the gossip line pretty quick. Both Jews and Greeks who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Wow. Even though that might have been a hilarious and damaging situation for them, Jesus is getting glory out of the situation. Why? Because any time that Paul intercepted an evil spirit like that, it didn't happen to him. In fact, his very sweat cloth was casting out demons. He didn't even have to be present. That's intense. That shows the distinction of the word of the Lord and what can happen when you have a personal ministry. Don't discount the supernatural. Don't discount it. It's there. It's alive and well. In our first world country, it's very subtle. But understand this. Do not discount it for a second. Do not. Moving forward here, verse 18. Sorry, we have a lot of ground to cover. I'd like to spend more time. Before we can. Many also of those who had believed, notice they're already believers, okay, kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices. Uh-oh. <coughs> Excuse me. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 
pieces of silver. If you worked eight hours a day for five days a week for 137 years, that's how much this cost you. And they turned it into a bonfire. Here's the point I want to bring from this. Notice that they already believed, but they weren't a people who had taken the initiative to sanctify themselves. They were believers, but they still had their magic books at home. Their Ouija board was still on the shelf. And they needed to bring it, and they needed to break it. They still had their crystals laying around. Some of us are religious about essential oils and just sprinkling it everywhere. I don't know. Trying to bring calm and tranquility to a situation when that's the Spirit's job. Finding in these false things hope. And what they recognize is, is in comparison to the Lord Jesus Christ, you can't. You can't do it. You can't trust in anything else and be in a growing relationship with Him. When spiritual warfare takes place and it gets people's attention, here's what it is, they repent. This is what it looks like to have the mind changed and the fruit of repentance that flows out of it. Wait a second, I've got to do an inventory of my personal life and recognize what's got to go so that Jesus can have more of it. That's always a good decision. It's always a humble decision, and it shows the fact that we're peaceable before the Spirit. Maybe that's something in your own life you need to think about right now. Maybe the Holy Spirit is provoking your heart. You know you shouldn't be dabbling in this. You know that this right here, you love it so much, it's become a distraction from what Jesus really has in your life. That's a really good point to come to. Don't push it off. Don't become hardened to that. Be open and trust Him for what He might have for you. Verse 19. Sorry, they're burning their books. Forgot that. What's the result? Verse 20. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Now that all of these satanic roadblocks were out of the way, don't ever pretend that they're not like that. These satanic roadblocks are out of the way. The gospel could now speed forward and have an even greater impact on people. Why? Because they're more open to it. Verse 21. <clears throat> this is a very interesting scene. Now you say, good grief, why are we covering so much? This is all surrounding Ephesus. And now here's the unfolding of a two year, and after we see these places that he names, it branches into a third year of ministry. Paul spent more time in Ephesus than anywhere else he did in his missionary journeys. Look what it says, verse 21. Now after these things were finished, Paul purposed in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. He knew he had to go and stand before Caesar. It says here, and having sent into Macedonia to of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, so they take leave of him. He himself stayed in Asia, that's Asia Minor, where Ephesus is for a while. So he remains there. After two years, he sends Timothy and Erastus out. Verse 23, And about that time, there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way, which is what Christianity was known as at that time. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, Men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. Pause. He creates silver, tiny replicas and idols to sell. Here's what he's saying. Our pocketbooks are getting attacked. You want to get somebody's attention real quick? Talk to them about how they're losing money. People perk up really quick. Why? Because people love money. Now watch how this moves forward. You know that our prosperity depends upon this business. You see and you hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded 
and turned around the considerable number of people saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. And we all puff up our chest and go, yay, yes. Is that true? Is he telling the truth? Does Demetrius like the truth? Demetrius hates the truth because it stands in the way of his pocketbook. Now remember, spread all throughout Asia. Everybody knows. Everybody's privy to this. And something's got to be done about it because we're not getting as much cash flow as we were previously. Look at all the people involved. Demetrius is first. Notice that he gets more people that are together in his business, a craftsman, and then he finds workmen of similar trades that probably would have created the same types of idols associated with Diana. Now watch this. Verse 27. Not only is there a danger that this trade of ours fall into disrepute, remember that's a money situation, but watch this, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless, and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship will even be dethroned from her magnificence. Now pause. What kind of God do you serve that could be dethroned? Does that create any kind of urgency with somebody? But notice what he's doing. He's inciting panic and fear in people. Why? Because when you get a little bit of panic and fear, you get people to do whatever you want. I think it was Hillary Clinton who said, first, you got to get chaos going on. And then you'll be surprised what you can pass through Congress. Scary. And so is she. Moving on. It says here, and real quick, let's talk about Artemis real quick. Artemis is also what is known in Roman culture and also later on in Latin culture as Diana. Artemis was considered a goddess of fertility. She was also considered a huntress. She was also considered that only animals could reproduce by her permission to do so. And any time that there was a situation like a miscarriage that took place or the idea of infertility inside of a marriage or something like that, it's because she was holding a grudge in some way and was withholding the situation from happening. Now, you can Google photos if you want this. I don't necessarily encourage you to do so. But some of the stone replicas or statue replicas that have been made of her are absolutely perverse of what she was known of. Also, another interesting thing about this is she was set in the middle of uh, the temple of Artemis that was located in Ephesus. Real quick, Dave, can we bring that up? This is just a replica of what it possibly looked like. But this temple was incredible. It had 127 columns that went all around it. It was almost 450 feet long. I think it was about 300 feet wide. It was four times bigger than the Parthenon. Okay, if you're familiar with that. And inside was the statue of her. Also, it was believed that the distortion of what it was in speaking in tongues, if you remember when we covered that, whenever we talked about spiritual gifts, the distortion of what it was to be speaking in tongues as a gibberish type language was facilitated a lot through this temple of Artemis because she always had in-betweens that would come between that person seeking her favor and the statue, and they would speak some weird gibberish type of language in order to make that happen. So there's a lot that goes on here as far as the depths of satanic deception, magical practices, magical books, casting out demons, that type of stuff happening. And also, this was the central seat of it. Now, what's crazy about this is that Artemis was considered one of 25 possible major top-tier gods that at any time someone in Ephesus would worship. It was absolutely enraptured with false belief trying to appease to all of these different people in order to get what people want in their lives. In other words, it was an incredibly religious 
society. All the more reason why Paul would want to be there, especially after his experience in Athens. So now it's attacking the pocketbook, and there's a danger that she might be overthrown, and people would no longer be worshiping here. Now stop. That in and of itself is a pocketbook assertion. People stop worshiping Diana, they're not going to go home with their little silver trinket souvenir from your time with her. The money is what calls the shot. Moving on here. Notice it says here, verse 28, when they heard this, they were filled with rage and they began crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. That's, that's obviously the call of the day. <clears throat> verse 29, the city was filled with confusion and they rushed with one accord into the theater. Now notice, a lot of people that weren't in on that meeting don't even know what's going on, but you were still able to herd them all together and get them all into one place. It says here they, they were dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. And when Paul wanted to go into the assembly, the disciples would not let him. Now that's just like Paul. There's all kinds of confusion and stuff going on. Let me come in and speak to everybody and kind of set the record straight. Here's the thing. Had Paul done anything wrong? No. Why is everybody on the verge of rioting? Because they hate the truth. And what it attacks your personal livelihood, I may have to give this up if Jesus takes precedence in this. Don't ever be that person. Be willing to give it up so that Jesus can have it. He will supply. Notice it says here, they all came with one accord uh, into this situation. Uh, verse uh, uh, 31, Paul wanted to go speak to him. Verse 31, and some of the Asiarchs who were friends, and those were some of the high-ranking officials in that area, uh, were, were the, who were friends of Paul's, uh, they sent to him and repeatedly urged him not to venture into the theater. So then some were shouting one thing and some another. For the assembly was in confusion. And the majority, good grief, does this not hit home? The majority did not know for what reason they'd come together. Hey, why are you here? Somebody said burgers. I don't know. Who knows what they were promising them to be there? The majorities, a lot of them are in confusion. The majority don't know why they're where. But you know what? We got to be mad at something. Pause. Is this not the insanity we see today? We got to be mad at somebody. Who's a common enemy that we can hate? Let's just find somebody to hate. Understand this, guys. I'm not talking about the world. I'm talking about the church. Sometimes the church doesn't even have a clue as to why they're gathered together. The majority aren't for sure. They came for donuts. Guess what? We're not doing that anymore. That's because Duncan is owned by Satan now, I guess. I don't know. It's too expensive. Nobody should be charging that much for donuts. Anyway, moving on. But nobody really knows the reason why they're there. But then for some reason, the body of Christ has got to find somebody to hate. Or we're mad at Elon Musk because of this. We're mad at Bill Gates because of this. We're mad at Bill Clinton because of this. We're mad at Klaus Schwab because of this. You ever stop and pray for these people? They need Jesus. They don't need hate. If they're facilitators of the hate, they don't need it coming back at them. They don't care. Pray for them. But let's not be like this pagan situation here. Please, let's not. Notice it says here, verse 33, some of the crowd concluded it was Alexander. They don't know what's going on. They're all gathered together. But say, you know what? This guy looks like somebody to blame. Let's blame Alexander. Why? Since the Jews had put him forward and having motion with his hand, Alexander was intending to make a defense of the assembly. Right in the heart of Paul, he wants to calm everything. Guys, guys, calm down, calm down, calm down. I got something to say. There's a problem. But when they recognized he was a Jew, wait a second. He's an out-of-towner. He's not from Ephesus. 
we're not listening to this guy. Notice what it says. A single outcry arose from them. And they all shouted for about two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. You think I preached too long. Can you imagine sitting in on this and listening to it? Over and over. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Over and over and over. Unwilling to listen to any sort of reason whatsoever. Verse 35, after quieting the crowd, the town clerk said, now praise the Lord. Have you seen how many people have been involved in this situation already? The town clerk steps up. For some, He must be from in town. Everybody wants to listen to him. Look what he says here. Men of Ephesus, what man is there, after all, who does not know that the city of the Ephesians, now watch this because this gives you a perspective of how they felt about this cultic satanic worship, is guardian of the temple of the great Artemis. Now watch this. And of the image which fell down from heaven. Say what? Now here's what this probably derives from. Either A, there really was an image that Satan had cast down and to really get their attention at some point. Or B, the image had been sitting there for so long, the statue had been sitting there for so long, that time was able to create a, folk, a folklore around it in order to further deceive people. We usually find it's probably the latter rather than it is the former. Verse 36. So since these are undeniable facts, we're, we're all, what, what? Yeah, since they're undeniable facts, you ought to keep calm and do nothing rash. Or you've brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of our goddess. So notice, nobody spoke out against Artemis directly. So then, if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have a complaint against any man, the courts are in session and proconsuls are available. Let them bring the charges against one another. If this is a civil dispute, let it be settled civilly in court. Okay? Verse 39. But if you want anything beyond this, it shall be settled in a lawful assembly. Because the assembly wasn't lawful. For indeed, we're in danger of being accused of a riot. Why would that be a problem? Rome loved to have peace amongst their people. But if they felt like an uproar was going on, they would easily commission the Roman army to come in, clean house, and set things at peace by force. The town clerk's like, wait a second, guys. We got something good going on in Ephesus. Don't do that. We're on the verge of having the army called in. He says here, since there is no real cause for it, guess that. The town clerk was not one of the people in confusion. He's looking at all the facts. And he's like, what are we doing? There is no reason to be this upset about this situation. There's no cause for it. And in this connection, we will be un, uh, sorry, and in and in this connection, we will be unable to account for this disorderly gathering. After saying this, he dismissed the assembly. They all left. Amazing. Who is this guy? He needs to hang out in every business meeting. I love it. Chapter 20, verse 1. After the uproar had ceased. Paul sent for the disciples, and when he had exhorted them and taken his leave of them, he left to go to Macedonia. He leaves Ephesus. In fact, it's the last time that he's at Ephesus. He doesn't come back. What are some thoughts we can put together with everything that we see? It's a lot of stuff. I left some of it out, but it's a lot of stuff. Number one. Conflict is always looming when Jesus is being talked about. One of the reasons why we feel so drawn to lost people is because they bought into a lie. Or they bought into false thinking. 
or just the way you see that they're handling their lives is just in disarray. Maybe they're in severe lack of encouragement. The only encouragement that we know how to give is encouragement in the Lord. We can tell them, don't you know you have an awesome waistline and your cheekbones are amazing? We can tell them that all day long. But more of self is not what they need to hear. What they need to hear is about the greatness of the Savior on their behalf. Christian or non-Christian, we all need to hear that. Anytime that Jesus is spoken of, expect opposition. Don't let it be strange. The second thing, I don't know if you saw it, but discipleship takes time. If you're going to sit down with another believer in a one-on-one setting, and I I believe that every believer in Christ should be in a one-on-one setting with somebody, it takes time. It takes investment. How would it be if you were in the stock market and you only invested your stock for a day? Would you get much of a return out of that? No, you really don't. In fact, we would consider that incredibly reckless in doing that. It's the same with people. It takes time to invest in people. It takes time to get people thinking according to doctrine. We saw in Corinth, chapter 18, he was there for a year and a half. And good grief, he had to write to them later, didn't he? We know that book. But when he was in Ephesus, he stayed there for two, more likely three years that we know of after all this happened. Takes time to disciple. The last one. Every single person has a role to play in God's plan. Think about all the people we've seen. Aquila, Priscilla, Paul, Timothy, Erastus, Gaius. What's the other guy's name? Arist- Aristarchus. Don't try to spell that on your own. And then Alexander, poor guy, just pulled him out and threw him forward. Even the town clerk, who we see as unbelieving, stepped forward and was being used by God's purposes in this situation. Everybody has a part to play. What part are you playing in God's plan right now? Where are you at in the grand scheme of everything that God wants to do? Maybe you are a discipler that needs to be involved in discipling. Maybe you need to be discipled, and so you need to seek somebody out for discipleship. Maybe you're somebody that's just on fire to share the gospel. Guess what? You need lost friends in order to tell that. But all of us play a role in the body of Christ. We're all one in his body. But not all have the same function. I think it's really good for us to stop sometime with how busy Monday through Saturday is and ask a really solid question. God, in all that eternity would ask of me, what do you want me to do? How can I be best used? Jesus, I thank you for the journey of Paul. I thank you, God, for his willingness to be used, to go anywhere you'd have him to go, to be faithful to his commitment to you, to speak boldly when the opportunity arrives, to minister faithfully behind the scenes, to understand strategically who to leave where for the greatest gains for the gospel. Lord, as he moved about, we see him as as having the heart of a peacemaker, wanting to speak on his own behalf, not looking to offend anyone, but also not wanting to cover up the truth for the sake of not offending. Father, there's not one person in this room who is a believer in Jesus that you have not placed eternal value on, 
and have given an eternal calling to. So Lord, we pray that our hearts would be sensitive to those things. Lord, if we're in sin this morning, we have not confessed to you, have not come to terms with you, if we're just being eaten alive by bitterness or anger or malice, it's time to lay those things down and put on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's only in Him that those things can be dealt with. It's time for forgiveness to take place. And to ask the question, Lord, how can I be used for your plan to Father, examine our hearts. May we be encouraged. The fact that you desire to work with us. You are with us. It's all because of